The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer, W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Well, I almost feel like saying you all need to take your bulletins out and look at them because you need to understand the calendar for January. So if you have one, you need to pay close attention. January is the time which we test everybody's ability to read a calendar and keep a schedule. The simplified version is there will not be Bible class on Thursday night, the first three weeks of January. This is when we go into our uh, change-up mode because I will be leaving on January the 4th to go to Kiev. So there will be no Bible class the 5th, the 12th, or the 19th. And then there will be no Bible class on January the 17th. You're going to have a great guest speaker on the 8th and the 10th. Uh, Dr. Richard Klein, I've known Rich for a long time. He founded and pastored uh, Alvin Bible Church for many years. And when I was a wet-behind-the-ears 28-year-old pastor and having congregational problems, he was a great friend and, and uh, someone to talk to. Didn't live too far away. And I uh, look back on it now, and he probably wasn't all that old then, but I thought he was. Don't tell him I said that. He's going to talk on Proverbs both on uh, the 8th and the 10th. Then there won't be any Bible class on Thursday the 12th because Charlie Clough will be coming in for three nights, the 13th, 14th, and then Sunday morning the 15th. Uh, Charlie will be speaking on some uh, three really good topics. He's going to talk about eschatology and uh Marxism and eschatology and environmentalism and uh, eschatology and is it Islam? Those of you who are up at conservative the theological society this summer, he's going to take those papers. He's he's taught them two or three times in a you know less academic setting, and he's going to cover those. and It's really fascinating. He's got, as usual, just some tremendous material. And so that will be a three-night weekend conference, the 13th, 14th, and 15th. And after that, then everybody gets the week off on Tuesday and Thursday. And then I return on the 20th. After that, we go back to our normal schedule. So make sure you, you keep that in gear. And Connie, remind me to put that on the answering machine. Okay? All right, before we get steady, get started this evening. We need to make sure we're in fellowship, so let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can gather together in freedom tonight to study your word. We thank you for those who have gone before us in this nation, those who are willing to sacrifice their lives that we might have freedom. 
those who did, those who have served faithfully, we thank you for the freedom that we have to gather together and study your word. We thank you for your word, for all that went into revealing that, getting it written down, preserving it, keeping it intact through the centuries, for all those theologians and students of the word who have gone before, who have been our guide and guides and those who have uh, thought through issues even when they came up with the wrong answers. It helped us to uh, further our correct understanding of the scriptures. Father, we thank you for all the scribes and all the uh, those who were uh, cloistered away in monasteries who copied the word faithfully and preserved it down through the centuries. For all the teachers and writers and all that they contribute to our understanding of the word. Father, now as we study your word, may we be conscious of this tremendous flow of history in which we stand and the entire uh, scope of the church and all the believers in the church age and our future destiny with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand these things and, and to think clearly about them, to focus, to concentrate this evening without being distracted. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Genesis 26, and we've started a study of, of uh, the Toledot or the descendants of Isaac. Actually, the focus on this whole section is more on Jacob than it is on Isaac, and we got started with that last time, and towards the end of the of our class last time, I introduced us to the key way in which Isaac or excuse me Esau and Jacob are used in the New Testament. We get in the New Testament specifically in Romans nine about verses 10 to 13, we focus on Esau and Jacob are used in Paul's discussion of God's justice. And that also happens to be a passage that is frequently appealed to for in the in realm of uh, the doctrine of election. So we got into some basic things to think about on election. And since we were running out of time, I kind of whizzed through that. And afterwards, several people said, Whoa, could you go through that just one more time? And so I added some more thoughts to it, and we're going to review that this evening. I know with Christmas uh, events going on and people who go on vacation, I don't know what it's like to sit out there in the pew and somebody's teaching and they say something that suddenly reminds you that you have to give a certain present to Aunt so-and-so and you don't quite know what that is and you spend the next 15 minutes thinking about that and then you come back in and you're in the middle of the doctrine of election and you just don't know quite what happened. So we'll, uh, since it's Christmas and it, everybody's easily distracted by one thing or another, we're going to go over this again. First point dealt with the words, election. What does election mean? And the problem that we have is that really connotes different things for some different people, depending on your background, depending on what you're exposed to. And there are some folks who've been hot and heavy trying to think through this, the whole concept of predestination and election and the sovereignty of God and the free will of man and how all this works together. And when you come to certain passages in Scripture, if you read them just at a superficial level, it may be you may read it one way or another. And so we need to get into the text to see what these things say. For some folks, election is just a nasty word. Calvinism is a nasty word. But Calvinism really shouldn't be. And the reason I say that is because this country was founded by uh, men and women who were Calvinists. 
whether you're talking about the separatist pure, uh, pilgrims who came, separatist Baptist pilgrims who came and landed at Plymouth Rock, or you're talking about the Anglicans down in Virginia, or you're talking about the Puritans in Massachusetts, these were all men and women who came out of uh, rigorously Calvinistic traditions uh, in one, one form or another, and that gave them a, a biblical understanding of things such as authority, and government, and they had a high view of Scripture, and we may not agree with a lot of their theological conclusions or exegesis, but they laid a foundation for this culture that marked the understanding of, of history such that in 1963, uh, historians will mark that as the end or as the uh, beginning of the post Puritan era. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of Puritans, but there's a lot of folks who just don't understand what Puritanism is. I actually got a correct understanding of Puritanism from a, I guess it was a a junior high teacher that I had. And it's rare today that anybody has it. Most people think of Puritans as legalists and self-righteous, and they want a purify life idea. But that wasn't what made a Puritan a Puritan. What made a Puritan a Puritan was that they wanted to purify the worship, the liturgy of the Church of England from Roman Catholic uh, influences. They wanted to get rid of the cross where Christ was still on the cross, which is what you typically have in a Roman Catholic setting, because they celebrate the crucified Christ every time they have Mass. And that goes on week after week after week. So Jesus never gets off the cross into the grave and gets resurrected. You never have a finished, completed salvation, which is why... Uh, Roman Catholics are never sure that they're saved. These things tie together. And all of the ritual and the robes and everything that went along with it uh, and the fact that uh, all the service was done in Latin and not in the vernacular of the people and they didn't have a Bible in their own language, all of these things were part and parcel of Roman Catholic theology. And so the Puritans wanted to purify the Church of England from the trappings of Romanism. And that's why they were called Puritans. And you had different kinds of Puritans. You had Congregational Puritans. You had uh, Presbyterian Puritans. You had Separatist Puritans. Uh, You had, even though you had Baptists at that time, like the Scroobyite group that went to the Netherlands, they were still Calvinistic in other areas of their theology. And we're talking about the period from about the middle of the 1500s up through up through the 1600s. And so the people who came to America, especially in the 1600s, were in the early part of the 1600s during the time of James I and the period of uh, Charles I up until he lost his head by, you know, by Oliver Cromwell and they established the protectorate. There were, for example, in a 10-year period from 19, I mean from uh, 1620 to 1630, about 40,000 Puritans immigrated from England to Massachusetts. And that's a tremendous number of people for that period of time coming over in those little bitty ships. If any of you have ever been up to Plymouth and seen the Mayflower, it's not a whole lot bigger than this room. Well, maybe twice the size of this room. But that's an awfully tiny ship to spend 100 days or so on the water. And yet they, they had 
convictions about God leading them, and they had a high view of God and a high view of Scripture, and there's a value to that. And it was their understanding of church government and the way they looked at church government as a representative type of, 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 of government that laid the foundation for our understanding of a representative republic. And it was influenced very heavily by the fact that, in, in a, especially in a Presbyterian church, you had elders, which would be comparable to the Senate, and you had deacons, which would be comparable to the Congress, and this was, uh, I mean, to the House of Representatives. So you had two different groups, and then you had a pastor, and that would be like the uh, executive office. So this, it was their view of church and their view of church government that he- heavily influenced the thought in, uh, in America in the colonies. So don't think of Calvinism necessarily. Don't have a knee-jerk reaction. The early dispensationalists, such as John Nelson Darby, C.I. Schofield, Lewis Ferry Chafer, were all fairly strong Calvinists in their view of certain aspects of soteriology because they all came out of backgrounds that were heavily influenced by Presbyterianism. C.I. Schofield was ordained a Congregationalist. Uh, uh, Chafer was ordained a... Uh, congreg- uh, I think Schofield was originally a Presbyterian, then he transferred to Congregation. The difference is in your church government. And then Sco- uh, Chafer was ordained a Congregationalist evangelist, and he was a member of the Southern Presbytery. In fact, in the 1920s, the Southern Presbytery in the United States brought Lewisbury Chafer up on charges of heresy because he was a dispensationalist. So these, in fact, John Walbert was a Presbyterian, and when I had John Walbert. I understand he changed his views by by the 90s, but when I had John Walvoord back in the 70s, he still practiced baptism by sprinkling. He still ba- uh, baptized infants. I had four different profess- different professors at Dallas Seminary when I went through who who would still practice, who are ordained Presbyterians and would still practice infant baptism. So this is a strong part of our heritage, even though there's elements of Calvinism that are not uh, what we would agree with today, and there certainly has been some distortions in some areas. I'm I'm a firm believer that Calvinism has, has provided a very rich, significant, and important part of our heritage. So we just should not have this kind of knee-jerk disdain for Calvinism just because there were many Calvinists who were off into distortions that led to what we call now lordship salvation. So let's just look at this doctrine of election, which is what a lot of people think of when they think of Calvinism, that some people are elected to heaven and some people are elected to hell. That's called double predestination where you have one group that's predestined to heaven and one group predestined to, to, to hell. And in fact, most moderate Calvinists don't believe, they believe that one group is predestined or elected to heaven and the other group is just passed over because they're, they're from the moment of birth, they're condemned and uh, sent to the lake of fire, so God in His grace saves some. And there's a strong emphasis on God's grace, even though I think there's some, some elements of that that are somewhat distorted. Okay, key words that we find in the Scripture. And the word elect or election or selection is found in both Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament word is the Hebrew word bachar, which means to choose, to elect, to decide for. 
to uh, it, the noun form has to do with choice. Someone who's cho- chosen one form of the word, either as a verb or noun, is used 198 times in the Old Testament. It can refer to uh, human beings making a choice to do something. And many times uh, God is the subject and God makes the same kind of choices that man makes. He has the right as the sovereign creator of the universe to make choices about how human history is going to go forward. God chooses and he guides and directs history. So we have to recognize that if God is God, then God is going to uh, move things along in the way he wants. New Testament, the Greek uses the word eklektos. You can almost hear the word elect in eclect. That's where we, it's a, it's a derivative of eclectos. It means to choose, to select. The noun means chosen, elect, or choice people. The idea of choice involves thoughtful and deliberate consideration. Therefore, choosing is not something that is done randomly or arbitrarily. There is thought, there's knowledge, there's information that goes into God's selection, God's choice of people in human history. So that's just the basic uh, words and their meaning. So we define election as selection, God making certain choices and enacting those choices in human history. The issue that comes up in the historical debate, point number two, has to do with election in relationship to eternal uh, destiny. And the debate really focused in history. Uh, Towards the end of the 1500s, there was a man by the name of Derek von uh, Kornherd, who was, uh, you probably never heard of him, and he was a disciple of a man named Jacobus Arminius. And so we come to the understanding of Arminianism. And they... uh, they were both trained in strong Calvinistic schools, but they began to challenge some of the thinking, and especially in relationship to the sovereignty of God and election. And so the, those who were followers of the, uh, of the, the followers of Arminian, they became known as Arminian, Arminians, not Armenians, that's an ethnic group, but Arminians. They got together and they challenged the Calvinistic status quo, the, the leaders in the Reformed Church, with what they called five remonstrants. These were five things that they, were, they challenged for debate, sort of like Luther's 95 Theses. So there were these five challenges, and they started off with the fact that man, every man was born in the same condition Adam was created. He had pure, unadulterated free will. He wasn't tainted by... Adam's original sin, he wasn't born a sinner. Uh, he, he could determine his own destiny. He was totally autonomous. And so everything flows out of that, ba- that basic understanding that man was uh, t- totally able in every single area. And that led uh, to the next point, and that was that uh, man had the ability to choose. And so they held what was called conditional election. And, and when it came to security, there was no security because if man chose for God one day and chose against him the next day, then he'd be saved one day and lose his salvation the next day. And, of course, there's many things in the Arminian system that we wouldn't agree with. Well, there was a response to that called the counter-remonstrance. And those counter-remonstrance became uh, incorporated into a little uh, acronym called TULIP. So we talk about the flowers of Protestant theology. On the one hand, you have 
Uh, Arminian theology or Daisy theology. See, they're never sure whether they're saved or not. So it's, you know, one day he loves me, next day he loves me not. Then he loves me, then he loves me not. So that's, that's our, the Arminian Daisy theology. Then on the other hand, you have the Calvinistic tulip. T is for total depravity, although in, it's usually defined best as total inability. And you start from that starting point that man in his fallen condition is totally unable to do anything positive towards God. Where that gets tweaked is they look at even faith and volition as having merit. Now that's critical, I think, to working our way and thinking our way through this whole mess is that for them, even positive volition and faith are meritorious in themselves. And that is that is something that, that it's hard to get some Calvinists to, to really unpack that and admit that, but that's essentially how they view faith if you read uh, read the literature. The U is for unconditional election, which means that uh, election is not conditioned on God's foreknowledge of future events that certain ones will believe in Christ. Uh, election is not conditioned on man's ability or his response to God. In other words, God is making the ultimate decision. He, he's the one in charge. He makes the ultimate decision in the universe, and God alone is going to initiate the process. There's no merit whatsoever in the creature that causes God to select or elect him. Now, that's critical terminology. There's nothing meritorious in the believer that, or in the individual that causes God to... Uh, to, to choose him. There's that word cause. We're going to talk about that a little later on. It's very important to understand that. The Arminian view is conditional election. And in the Arminian view, they define this as God foresaw who would believe and repent. But for the Arminian, belief is still meritorious. You have to understand that for them, belief is meritorious. It is still the cause of God's selection. And belief is meritorious. It's, we would disagree with that. We would say, no, belief is non-meritorious, that the merit is in the work of Christ on the cross. Faith is merit-neutral. There's no merit whatsoever in it. Now, all Arminians believe that an adopted believer may fall from grace or lose salvation. That's inherent within the system. And I think we have to be fair that these are systems of theology. They, they hang together, these, these five points, one way or the other. So there's a small number, according to Arminians, who God foresaw would persevere in gospel grace unto death, and he elected those unto, to, unto eternal life. In, in Arminianism, you can, you can be saved and li- live uh, your life, and then just before you die, you decide to uh, reject Christ and you lose your salvation. And that's not a whole lot different from what I, we would call lordship or perseverance type of Calvinism, which says basically the same time, thing. And I talked last week about the episode with James Montgomery Boyce and how R.C. Sproul at a conference said, our, our dear brother, Dr. Boyce, is dying, and we need to pray that he will persevere through to the end so that he doesn't uh, reject Christ before he dies because they were afraid that if he did, he wouldn't lose his salvation. As Calvinists, you can't lose your salvation, but it would prove that he didn't ever really have it. 
So it's a backdoor form of works. And uh, their view of perseverance is that if you're truly saved, you're going to have fruit that is in keeping with that salvation. They go to passages, uh, for example, where John the Baptist talks about uh, those who will uh, have fruit in keeping with, with repentance. But the fruit that he's talking about isn't moral qualities or spiritual qualities in the life. He's talking about what they teach with the, the false, what the, what the teachers taught with their lips, what they said in relationship to the Word of God and doctrine. So when it says, by their fruit you shall know them, it's not talking about the moral quality of their life. It's talking about what they taught, the content of their, uh, their teaching. So there's this historical debate between Calvinism and Arminianism, and my contention is that these theological systems are internally consistent. They're rigorous, logical systems, but they're based on faulty exegesis. Now, I think there's more true premises in Calvinism than in Arminianism, because Calvinism has a high view of God. Arminianism has a high view of man. And we must preserve a high view of God. Remember, Isaiah says that God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And so we have to maintain this distinction between God as the creator, who is the sovereign, and therefore ultimately God's in charge, and what goes on in humanity. This leads us to our third point. God is sovereign in history. God is the ultimate cause of all things. Not necessarily in a direct way. There's different types of causation. I'm not going to get into that now. Uh, but let me. I want to give you an uh, an example of what's often uh, discussed in something like this. For example, there's a book out on ch- called Chosen but Free by Norm Geisler, and uh, we used to call him Storm and Norman. And Norm taught at Dallas Seminary for a brief period of time, but he thought Dallas was a little too Calvinistic, and he went out to thing is in North Carolina now started a seminary but he's he's a brilliant man he got his training at Loyola and he has a, a doctorate in philosophy and well, the problem that you have often with men like Norm Geisler who would be uh, some people would think would be closer to uh, my view but he's not uh, the problem you have with Norm Geisler is the same problem you have with many Calvinists is they take a, some deductions and they elevate those to general principles, and then they exegete the Scripture in light of these theological deductions. And the problem is you're, you're, you're eisegeting, you're taking these, these logically sounding, uh, these principles that sound logical and sound like they've been derived from the Scripture, but they really haven't. And so one example of this is, is his view of causation. And he talks about the fact that there are three views of, of causation, determinism, which is the view that actions are caused by another, that every cause, every effect has a cause, right? Every effect has a cause. So determinism says that all actions are caused by something else. Therefore, all actions, including your faith in Christ, would have to be caused by God. This is a problem when you break down the creator-creature distinction is that you're thinking of causation in relation to the creature and you're applying that to causation in God. And yet God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And his ways are different because he's the, He's a creator. So determinism uh, sees it's, it's fatalism. It's that everything is determined, uh, and so it doesn't matter what choice you make. Self-determinism is a second view. 
And this is the idea that actions are caused by self. So you could say that extreme Calvinism is, is hyper-determinism, really. And Arminianism is self-determinism, that actions are caused by self. Man is the ultimate determiner of the de- destiny of human history. Well, you get into a lot of problems there because man is, if man's choice can at any time be, be totally free, and then you end up with what's the heresy to, of, of the, of the uh, recent time called open theism. I bet none of you heard of open theism. Open theism has gotten really popular in the last few years. In fact, uh, there was a big debate at the uh, Evangelical Theological Society several years ago that some of the proponents of, of uh, open theism were brought up on, on charges of violating the doctrinal statement. And then, and we, we all thought that there was going to be some hope and they were going to kick these guys out, and they didn't. And so a lot of conservatives just dropped their membership because it meant their doctrinal statement didn't mean anything anymore. Uh, open theism is the idea that God is totally open to the future. He doesn't really know what's going to happen because if man is really free, then you can make decisions tomorrow different from what uh, God thought would happen and something different is going to happen. So God really doesn't know the future. He just has a good sense of probability. So he is open to the future. And that's where Arminianism ultimately goes. And, uh, and that's true self-determinism. And then you have a third view called indeterminism, that actions are not caused by uh, actions are not caused by anything; they just happen. That's a misspelling there. Actions are not caused by anything. So the problem that I have with with Geisler's breakdown, the way Geisler seeks to approach the whole problem, is that all of this leads to a false dichotomy: either God is in control of every detail, or He's not in control of any detail. And where we fail in our analysis here is to understand that creaturely causation is not within our frame of reference. Creature, I mean, the creator's causation, the causation of the creator, the way God causes things to take place, is not within our frame of reference. So the only kind of causation that we can understand within our frame of reference is a kind of causation that controls somebody else's volition. But God can cause things to happen in history and bring about his will without violating human volition because it's a different kind of causation. So we have to be careful to keep God, God, and keep man, man. We have to keep the creator sovereign, and we have to keep the creature, the creature. And yet we have God has determined that man is going to have the ability to make certain decisions even though those decisions are not the ultimate cause of history. So this leads us to our fourth point, which is that divine causation at the creator level is not the same as causation at the human level. Now, we have a lot of trouble with that because the only thing we have in our frame of reference is causation that would override human volition and responsibility. But God is able to direct history and to include real contingency within history. What I mean by contingency is that there's real choices that man makes that are going to have real differences in the way things work out in history. This is why prayer changes things. This is why you have events in Scripture, and we'll look at a couple of them in a minute, where God is going to do one thing, 
and then there is prayer and God changes and does something else. There is real contingency in history. And yet, God's will and God's plan works out. Now, that'll blow, the, blow your, all your circuits if you think about it too much because you're trying to control divine causation and understand divine omniscience, which are, and they're related. And as creatures, we just can't do that. So the divine decision is such that it doesn't negate or override human responsibility. God says this is what's going to happen, but what happens doesn't happen apart from men making uh, decisions that are their decisions and that they're responsible and accountable for those decisions. And therefore, if they're bad decisions, they're completely blameworthy. And if they're good decisions, they're praiseworthy. And it goes to... Point five, when we talk about this phraseology, unconditional election and conditional election, when the Calvinist says unconditional election, he's basically saying that there are no conditions on God's choice. He just chooses who will be saved and who will not, which comes across as arbitrary and willful, that God's knowledge does not play a part in what God, in the decisions that God makes. And this is crucial. The key word in an unconditional election is that word condition. Calvinists argue that God has no conditions of knowledge related to his selection. In fact, what Calvinists believe related to God's knowledge is that God cannot know what he hasn't already determined. God only knows what will happen certainly. God only knows what will actually happen. He doesn't know what could potentially happen, what the options are. So he can't know what uh, know something will happen unless he is simultaneously determined that it will happen. Therefore, God must determine what will be in order to know it with certainty. That's their view. It comes down to how you understand omniscience. Now, if the condition is condition is related to knowledge then it's either arbitrary or maybe it's related to his knowledge of future contingent events, but that's not but they're not meritorious. So let's move to the next thing we need to think about. Point number six. Whatever the condition is, it can't be based on something meritorious in the object of divine choice. Now in the previous point, I said the fact that no condition is mentioned in Scripture does not mean a condition doesn't exist. In other words, just because the Bible doesn't say that God took into account future conditioned activities doesn't mean that God didn't take into account future contingent activities. The absence of a, of, of a statement of a condition doesn't mean that a condition doesn't exist. Otherwise, God's just making arbitrary decisions. So whatever the condition is, we know also that it can't be based on something meritorious in the object of divine choice. In other words, God can't be looking down the corridors of time and choosing you because you believe. And that violates all exegesis. There's no basis in Scripture that says that we're saved because of faith. That would be a dia plus the accusative case, and you never have that. You have dia plus the genitive, which is you're saved through faith. The ultimate cause must lie in a sovereign God. Now, also, when we talk about this, for the strict Calvinist, 
Merit is related to the idea of omniscience or prescience. That's the other word that's used, prescience. Because of God's knowledge of future contingent decisions enters his choice, then in their view, those future contingent decisions of the creature become the cause of the decisions of the creator. Now, all of this boils down to some really tricky and sophisticated discussions on the nature of divine knowledge, omniscience, and foreknowledge. And I'm not going to get into all of that, but I'm going to give you some interesting things to think about. At this point, all I want to do is point out that if faith is non-meritorious, and if positive volition at the point of God consciousness is non-meritorious, then it's foreseen reality. If God knows that this is what's going to take place in the future, then because they're non-meritorious, he's not making his decision based on merit in the creature. It's a non-meritorious decision. Therefore, point number seven, divine selection is not therefore based on foreseen merit in the object of selection. That's really the Arminian view, is that selection is made on a basis of a foreseen merit, i.e. faith, in the individual. But then faith in the individual becomes the, the cause of their salvation and not a means of their salvation. See, I told you this would cause you to think tonight. Point number eight. Faith, though, is non-meritorious. Saving faith is not based on the merit of the one believing. It's not even on the merit of faith. It's on the merit of the object of faith. It is Jesus Christ. The reason you're saved is because of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. The cause of our salvation is the love of God demonstrated to us through the cross of Christ. It is the love of God that constrains us. It is the love of God that is the ultimate cause of our salvation, not our, not our volition or any merit on our part. So we have to keep that clear. This really became clear to me, I don't know, maybe ten years or so ago, as I continuously wrestle with the question that somebody uh, raised back, oh, I think it was before I went to seminary, I was visiting with a friend of mine, and he had become a very strong Calvinist and still is, and he said, that that election ha- had to be based on God's choice because faith really was non-meritorious. I mean, f- faith was meritorious. And I really wrestled with that for a long time before I was able to really put everything together and realize uh, how that related to the whole concept of election. So that now the term that I like to use for election is is the term unmerited election that God's choice of who will be saved is not determined based on any merit on their part. It's based on their faith in Christ, but that's not meritorious. Now that leads us to the ninth point, which is something that's at the core of all this, is our understanding of the relationship of divine omniscience to foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is of that which is certain. Divine omniscience is, knows, is that God knows all that is knowable. In divine omniscience, God knows all that is noble. He knows the actual as well as the possible. He knows, for example, if you sat down, this is a, uh, isn't it the greatest uh, example. Let's say you're watching a, a baseball game or a football game, any sports activity, and every move that's made, well, if he, went, uh, if he had run on the right side instead of the left side, then this is what would have happened. If he had made a run up the middle, that would have happened. If he had made it pass instead of run, that would have happened. Uh, if he had uh, 
uh, gotten a couple extra hours of sleep instead of staying out at night, partying the night before, then the game would have gone another way. I mean, God knows all the variables. And within all those variables, God chooses to enact in history that plan which will glorify Him the most. Now, what's interesting about this is that in the last 15 years, there has been the development of a whole new discussion in relationship to uh, God's omniscience, which I think is very healthy. Most people don't have the philosophical ammunition that would even pay attention to the discussion. In the, in the philosophical discussion, this has taken place among religious theologian, philosopher theologians. They, the, they use the term factuals. What actually happened is a factual. So just think about that. It, because it actually happens, it's a fact. So the knowledge of what will happen is a knowledge of factuals. The knowledge of what might have happened is called counterfactuals. God not only knows all that will happen, all the factuals, he also knows all the counterfactuals. And that's a historically accepted, uh, accepted technical terminology that uh, most of us can't quite get our mental fingers around. But the debate goes back to one, the, the current debate is one that is being re-energized, but it's a debate that took place in the 1500s during the same time that you were having the debate between Calvinists and Arminians. And actually, that wasn't the first time the debate surfaced in church history. It first surfaced in church history back in the 5th century, early 5th century A.D., between Augustine, or Augustine as the Catholics refer to him, uh, Augustine, who was the Bishop of Hippo down, in Carth- down near Carthage in North Africa, and a British monk by the name of Pelagius. And Pelagius was declared to be a heretic, and Pelagius thought and taught that every person was born just as Adam was created, with total free will, no hindrance from sin whatsoever. And uh, Augustine countered him. And as usual, I think, you had two poles that developed. You go back and you read Augustine. A lot of people, Calvinists especially, just glorify Augustine. But if you read him, there's no reason to glorify him. But in the 16th century, in the late 1500s, there, a debate took place among Roman Catholic theologians along the same lines that you were having them among Protestants. You had a Jesuit priest by the name of Molina, who was a Spanish Jesuit, who taught a doctrine of middle knowledge. That's what it was called, middle knowledge, which attempted to preserve free will while maintaining God's sovereign grace. He was opposed by a Dominican by the name of Bañez, who was a follower of Thomas Aquinas. And Bañez believed that God predetermined secondary causes as well as primary causes for human action. What Molina argued was that God has the foreknowledge of what humans will choose, but that that knowledge doesn't determine human will. God's, uh, God's knowledge is a knowledge of all conditional future contingent events, everything that could possibly happen. So when you think of God's omniscience as knowing all that is possible, you can trace that whole line of thinking right back to uh, Luis de Molina, who was a Spanish Jesuit priest. See, you didn't even know that. See, all, no, nobody ever thinks of anything new. But what I find is helpful is going back and reading the debates that occurred in the early church and in the 1600s because these guys were so much better trained in terms of philosophy and thought than we are today that they, they think of everything. It's just amazing, and, and it'll, it'll wear your brain out. It's this idea that God knows the potential. Now, where would we go in Scripture to learn that God knows what 
could happen even though it doesn't happen. Well, let's look at a couple of things in Scripture. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 23. 1 Samuel chapter 23. This is an event that takes place in the life of David. And David at this time is fleeing from Saul. Saul's the king. David has been anointed king, but but Saul is still in in on the throne, still uh, leading the nation, and God hasn't removed him yet. And in 1 Samuel 23, 6 to 13, David is uh, in a village called Kilah. Verse 6 we read, Now it happened when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Kilah, that he went down with an ephod in his hand, and Saul was told that David had gone to Kilah. So Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand. I've got him. He's trapped. For he has shut himself in that town that has gates and bars. He's trapped in this fortress. I can just surround him and starve him out. Then Saul called all the people together for war to go down to Kilah to besiege David and his men. And when David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, so David's got his spies in Saul's army and knows that Saul's going to come down and try to uh, lock him up inside of Kilah, he says to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Now you want to know why it was so important that we learned that Abiathar brought the ephod with him. That was the priest's garment. And that's where he had the Urim and Thummim on the ephod, which was kind of a, nobody really knows, but it was sort of a, a way of asking God what to do. And you got either flashing lights or something that was a yes-no type of question, uh, or yes-no type of answer. So David said, bring the ephod here. And then David inquired of the Lord as to what he should do. He said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Kilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Kilah deliver me into his hand? In other words, am I surrounded by traitors? Will Saul come down as your servant is heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he's going to come down. Notice how definite that is. Saul said, God says, Saul's going to come. Then David said, Will the men of Kilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will deliver you. You're going to be handed over to Saul. So David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Kilah and went wherever they could go. They got out of Dodge. So what happens? Then it was, it was told Saul that David had escaped from Kilah, so he halted the expedition. See, God knew what would happen if David stayed in town. When David found out what would happen if he stayed in town, he left. So something else happened. But God didn't praise it with ifs and maybes or contingencies. God said, Saul's coming and he's going to capture you. So David did something else and something else happened. See, that indicates that there's a real level of contingency in history. God knew what would have happened under other conditions. We have another example of this in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 11. Verses 20 to 24. Now this is one that, that can, can really keep you awake at night if you think about it too much. So you don't want to get into Operation Overthink. Because our creaturely brains just can't quite handle all the permutations of something like this. Matthew eleven twenty 20 to 24. Jesus... Um, is rebuking uh, Tyre and Sidon and Chorazin and Bethsaida. And he says, he rebukes these cities 
And in verse 20 we read, Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. So he had gone to these cities and performed tremendous miracles, and people didn't change their mind. They didn't accept him as Messiah. And yet they had seen incredible miracles. And he pronounces a judgment on them in verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, that's Old Testament, they were judged, if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So he says what would have happened to Tyre and Sidon if they had seen the kind of miracles that Chorazin and Bethsaida saw. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, why didn't God do those miracles in, in uh, Tyre and Sidon? See, there's, there's that creator causality again. God is going to do what God's going to do in history. But there's contingency there, and he knows what would have happened under uh, different circumstances. Another passage that indicates this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. This is in Paul's epistle to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. However, he's talking about himself, the contrast between divine viewpoint wisdom and human viewpoint knowledge, which is foolishness. He says, however, we, that is we apostles, speak wisdom, Bible doctrine, knowledge of the Scriptures, among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the wisdom of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory which none of the rulers of this age knew. However, here's your potential. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. See, if the rulers of this age had known the truth, had known doctrine, then they wouldn't have crucified Christ and there wouldn't be salvation. So once again, you have God demonstrating his knowledge of what could have happened. God can play iffy history. And he knows exactly what would have happened under any and every scenario. So God definitely has a knowledge of potential events that don't actually come about. Now, there's a brilliant apologist by the name of William Lane Craig who teaches different different uh, venues, but he's on the faculty at Biola out in Southern California, and he's written a number of books related to this that unless you have an advanced degree in philosophy, you won't really be able to understand. So with the exception of one or two people out here, I wouldn't really recommend that you read him. Point number 10. Divine omniscience is direct, complete, and intuitive. God never increases in knowledge. He knows everything. He always has known everything. He knows all the contingencies, and he makes decisions in relation to his knowledge. It is a rational choice that God makes, not an irrational choice. So that leads to point 11. God makes specific choices in history that are related to his knowledge. They're not related to a lack of knowledge. He doesn't uh, make decisions that then become his knowledge. Thus, from the basis of his knowledge of all actual and possible events, God chooses to enact in history that that which will bring about A, 
His greatest glory, because that's the overriding purpose in history, His greatest glory in the angelic conflict, and B, demonstrate His integrity and love to the fullest extent. God is still God. He still controls history. He still brings about His will, but He does so in such a way that He doesn't make the decisions for His creatures. See, in any kind of determinism or fatalism, you ultimately destroy human volition. Our true responsibility. Point number 12. Thus God chooses in concordance with His knowledge which includes knowledge of all possible decisions man could make. God does not make random choices or choices that are arbitrary. He makes them in relationship to his omniscience. Now, in revealing these choices to man, point number 13, in revealing these choices to man, God does not reveal his rationale or the conditions for those decisions. That goes back to a point I made Way back in point five, the fact that no condition is mentioned in Scripture does not mean a condition does not exist. It doesn't mean that God wasn't well informed in the decision-making process. He doesn't explain why he chose to work through one. Why did he choose Abraham and not some other believer? And there were other believers. Why did he choose to... Uh, wait until 722 B.C. to take out the northern kingdom instead of 730 or 710? Why did he wait till 586 B.C. instead of 587 or 585? Why did he wait until approximately 4 to 6 B.C. before the Messiah came? It was in the fullness of times, but what about a year or two in either direction? What difference would that have made? See, God has a reason, but he just hasn't told us why he does this. Now, the passage that relates to Esau and Jacob, which is what I mentioned last time, is in Romans 9, uh, 10 to 13. This is the passage that uh, is often quoted, frequently quoted, by every uh, strong Calvinist to support unconditional election in relation to salvation. But the context just doesn't support this whatsoever. And it's a quote from... And I got this wrong last time. For some reason on the slide, I, I guess I had dyslexia when I typed in the reference. Instead of typing in uh, Malachi 1, 1 through 5, I typed in Malachi 2, 1 through 5. So if I put that up on the screen last time, people were probably saying, what does that have to do with this? Okay. Now, let's look at Romans first. Let's look at Romans first. Well, we've got five minutes left, and I just don't want to deal with Romans 9 and the whole argument there in five minutes and feel rushed. So we'll just have a little Christmas present and get out five minutes early. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, we do thank you for things we've studied. They're difficult. They're hard to understand. It's, it's a heavy material to think through your knowledge and your omniscience and how you're working out history to your glory. And Father, we pray that you'd help us to work through the Scriptures and think about these things, that the ultimate result will be that we will glorify you because of who you are and because of your greatness and your grandeur and because you are working out your purposes in history and that you ultimately are in control and we can rest and have confidence. But nevertheless, we know that we're accountable for our decisions and that there's true responsibility in human history and yet your grace has overridden our failures to provide us with a perfect salvation. We pray that you'd help us to think these things through very carefully and very clearly. In Christ's name, amen.